Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraberti. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Well, 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 if it isn't Michael Chakraverty. Well, 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 if it isn't Mark Watson in the, the opposite end of the globe currently. And it is, by the way. Uh, that was just a tease. It is. In, in both cases, it is. <laughs> but yes, we're now t- uh, just over 10,000 miles apart, I think it's fair to say. It is seven in the morning here. And what time for you? Sort of um, coming up to half past four in the afternoon here. The, the sun is beginning to set behind the buildings outside. Whereas you, I don't know, have you even got the sun yet? Um, I, I couldn't tell you. The, the windows aren't <laughs> open. I'm, my eyes are barely open. Um, but despite all assistance, we are finally back together. Hello, Mark. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Mankind Series 2, Part 2. Yes, thank you for your patience. Uh, special thanks to the patrons who have um, endured this barren spell. But thank you to all of you, actually, for coming back to this podcast, which you must have done. Otherwise, you're not hearing this. And, um, well, we're, we're <laughs> pleased with the way that we uh, have resumed, I think, Michael, it's fair to say. Yes, we have a lovely, lovely guest today. We have John Waite, who many of you will remember from The Great British Bake Off when he won, um, which I hear is, is overrated, actually. Most people prefer to leave um, before the end. Um, but then he also... You're still doing this, are you? Yes. <laughs> but he was also... Um... Reassuring for the old school <laughs> listeners. <laughs> And reassuring for me as well. But he was also on Strictly this year, the first same-sex male pairing with uh, Johannes Radebi. And he was, well, he was rather good, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, even as someone that doesn't watch Strictly that much, it was a um, a seismic moment, I think it's fair to say, in, in TV. And um, somehow we got to talk to him. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I think you're going to enjoy it as well. So we're going to stop talking, I think, and then start talking again, but in the past. Right? That pretty much makes sense. Yeah, and it is the past, but yeah. it'll be good. <laughs> Enjoy. Well, Mark Watson here and Michael Chakravarti up there in uh, Newcastle. Up there. up there on the screen and up there in the country. And we're joined today by someone else who's, uh, well, further north in the country than me. We're very lucky to have John Waite. Hi, John. Hello. Thank you for having me. How are you, John? You all right? I'm smashing. It's a lovely, drizzly Friday night. I've got my dog to my right of me and it feels cosy but we're on the cusp of spring as well so it's always good in the world yes the nights are uh, the nights are getting lighter aren't they it's nice out there and uh, it is well it's only patron viewers that have a chance of enjoying this but the dog would go down really well i think with our regulars we've had a few animals yeah sort of in the podcast before and this is a good one i have to admit yeah <laughs> i will tilt my screen to abel he's very aloof he's just like his daddy yeah he doesn't 
look like he's going to have many opinions on masculinity or on anything else, actually, at the moment. Well, he's lost his balls, so he's got no opinions on oh, Fair enough. But he would be an ideal podcast guest, actually. Yeah. <laughs> to know how he feels about that emasculating experience would be quite interesting. Oh, and he's put his paw on my paw as well, so he likes to pretend to be aloof, but actually he needs his daddy. Yeah, however much he might be pissed off with you for sort of lopping his testicles off in the end. <laughs> love is love. <laughs> True that. <laughs> uh, let's dive straight in with our first question and get cracking. Uh, I should say, Michael, we've not actually had John introduce himself yet. Oh, no, who are you? Sorry, I know who I you are. I don't know. Who the hell are you and how did you wander onto the podcast? <laughs> Ask my therapist, she'll tell you. Uh, OK, she refused to comment, she said there was patient confidentiality. Damn it, OK, I'll try and do, put it in my own. <laughs> she was actually quite rude with us, yeah. <laughs> well, who am I? There's a question. I was on Bake Off uh, 2012 and then that kind of catapulted me into a career of cookery and television cookery and food writing. Um, I hear that Bake Off is basically a sort of golden ticket to become a massive celeb, yeah. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't quite work out my end, but that's fine. Oh, sorry, Michael, I forgot you were here. Yeah. <laughs> You're the host of this formidable podcast, Michael. <laughs> Doesn't get much more celeb than this. <laughs> and then, you know, I've done food writing, a bit of presenting, did Strictly with Johannes in 2021. Yeah. So I would say I, I don't really have... I'm not a monolithic entity. I'm more of a polymorphous blob, unfortunately, my life. Uh, title of podcast, there we are. <laughs> First person to introduce himself as a polymorphous blob, as far as I know, yeah. Well, I wanted to say international superstar, but it's more of kind of like just a regional gobshite. <laughs> so I think polymorphous blob is better. Surely national gobshite after Strictly. <laughs> well, yeah. And yeah, you, you were the first all-male couple, is that right? Yeah, me and Johannes. You, you and Johannes, we were, yeah. We were with the first all-male couple. The way it was paved for us by Nicola and Cassia the year before, yes. who were the mm. first first same-sex couple. Um, but it was, yeah, it was brilliant to be a part of the, the first all-male couple. It was bloody scary at first. Yeah, 100%. You know, because, Michael, as you'll know, we, as gay people, we are conditioned to expect a lot of... Do a lot of flack, name calling, and, and you know we purposefully choose where to go in life, what bar to hang out in. We kind of live a blinkered life. Well, generally speaking, not mm. not all of us do, but so so it was quite scary because I was expecting Johannes and I were both expecting quite a lot of flack and hate, and we thought that you know Britain's going to vote us out in week two or three, but they didn't, which was a shock, and there was so much kindness and love. And they repeatedly didn't. You ended up in the final, so it was a fairly successful run, I would say. They never did vote you out, in fact, yeah. <laughs> no, they didn't. I mean, there was one semi-final week, we were in the dance-off, but we'll, yes. we'll gloss over that. That didn't happen. <laughs> You've got to bottom every so often, John. It's really important, just variety. <sighs> so my boyfriend tells me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't normally take Michael long to introduce a note like that. Well, I was wondering. I was wondering when that was going to happen. But, you know. <laughs> it's, it's worth spread betting on around 10 to 12 minutes, normally. <laughs> Yeah. It was a really amazing thing, though, and really brave. Like, how did you kind of summon the bravery to do that? Surely, I mean, for me, I would be terrified. Well, it was. It was scary, but I don't really sit well with it when people say, you know, you were brave to do it. Because let's not forget it strictly. You know, it's one of those things that many, many people would love to do. We were paid handsomely to do it. And we were treated like princesses the entire time, you know, cars picking us up every morning, hair and makeup. So although our message was important, and I would never want to undermine that, the kind of ideas of heroic and bravery for me are a little bit... They don't sit well with me. I mean, heroic's your word, John. I didn't say heroic. Well, you know. <laughs> you threw that one into there. Stop calling me a hero. <laughs> Just stop, guys. I'm not an international superstar. <laughs> <laughs> when you were in the thick of it, John, did you feel like... Were you conscious of the weight of being 
like the first all-male couple, or was it so stressful just doing the actual dancing that you, d- you didn't <laughs> think too much about the sort of wider significance of it? Because I would have imagined there's a fair bit on your plate just mastering what you've got to do every week without all this extra significance attached to it. That's right, yeah. I mean, it is, it is a, it's, a, it's a hard... I think of all the jobs I've done in terms of TV and stuff, it was a hard job. I mean, compare it to, you know, working two jobs to feed four children, then it was a walk in the park, but... As yeah. far as my life, as as far as I know, it, it was a difficult thing to do because you, you know, you kind of thrust cheek to cheek, knee to knee, testicle to testicle with, in my case, with a stranger for ten hours, twelve hours a day, six days a week, and you know, to be in that kind of pressurised environment. On top of that, you've got the judges critiques on a Saturday night you've got the public's perception of you and and we all know the public don't hang back in what they in their opinions on you through social media oh, yeah they're terrible the public but they're everywhere <laughs> so it was it was it was quite a stre- not, not stressful because it was really good fun but it was we were so busy that we didn't really think about about the significance of our partnership yeah. until every Sunday we'd go through our dms on Instagram and people would I think the most significant thing for me was straight men who messaged to say thank you for doing this so my kids can grow up in a world where two men can dance together oh, and wow. it's not... Yeah, fantastic. Because, you know, I grew up afraid of straight men. You know, I'm not afraid to, to say I, I I never hung out with straight men and we'll come on to questions about masculinity in a bit and why that's tricky for me. But, like, you know, I was always surrounded by girls and it's only kind of in recent years that I've allowed myself to have straight mates and I see the virtue in that. Um, yeah, we're all right. You're, you're not so bad, are you? <laughs> no, but some of us aren't, actually. Some no, of us I aren't know. that bad. <laughs> you're quite right. Actually, this does lead into my what was going to be my original question about your early contact with um, masculinity. Yes. When do you first remember being presented with what masculinity was and what did it look like? Um, I don't really remember because I don't think I had a notion of masculinity. And when the word masculinity kind of makes me recoil because I kind of see it as like a very laddish, louty. You know, that's what I, I always thought masculinity was. And so I always kind of tried to fit in but also not I, I never did fit in and for me I think masculinity how as I see it now is a different is different but for me masculinity was my stepdad who always used to say things like real men don't wear hairspray as I was you know putting my fourth layer of Weller shockwaves on that day he would come into the bathroom <laughs> and say real men don't wear hairspray and my stepbrothers kind of you know they were farmers and so they were very laddie as well. They were like football. He always talked about getting with birds behind the bike sheds. And, you know, I didn't really kind of... And I'm generalising as to what their masculinity was, but that was the only exposure I had to masculinity. That and my yeah. the lads at school who also played football and who used to call me out for being camp and queer. So masculinity for me, we never got on for a very long time. Mm. I think it took years of therapy to kind of feel that I am a man you know it made me question you know my place in the world my gender my sexuality it made me question all of that because I didn't fit that paradigm of of what it is to be a bloke were you already out like when you say they ridiculed you for being queer was that a known thing even at that point like in school or... no just because I hung out with girls and stuff yeah. you know I knew I was gay as soon as I found the underwear section of the the men's next catalogue. That was my first <laughs> encounter with pornography. Yeah, um, I, I think I knew. Uh, I think I knew I was straight when I similar experience, but with yeah. my mum's Littlewoods catalogue. But it was the, the women's section. Yeah, <laughs> mine was the Abercrombie and Fitch bag. I took one of them home and it lived in my in my bottom drawer for quite a long time. <laughs> oh, with the topless men on it. Yeah, yeah. They should really give all of us a catalogue as early in life as possible, and then it just it sorts your sexuality questions out quite yeah. quickly. I think. Yeah. Now, which one do you want to yeah. be? Which one of these swimsuits? 
things <laughs> interest you. Yeah, the bigger the bulge, the better. Um, so, <laughs> so I've lost myself now. What was I saying? You were saying that you weren't actually, it weren't in any sense out at school, but you were just obviously sort of othered by people. And yeah, I didn't fit into that. What it was to be the kind of paradigmatic man, and so people knew that I was um, was a bit different and. You know, I knew myself I was gay, but I didn't really want to accept it at that stage. And I hung out with girls. I always had my bag jauntily placed on one shoulder as I glided <laughs> glided from the bus. So, um... Nah, look at that. Gay. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> gay. <laughs> Real men are struggling under the weight of their massive rucksacks. <laughs> and giant knobs. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Well, I didn't like to say that about myself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I didn't really like the idea of masculinity for a very long time. Um, but now I think I... Think I I know what it is to be a man and I love it. Mm, it's really interesting, isn't it, about knowing you're something but not feeling comfortable enough to kind of express that. And I think that's changing with representation and we talked about you being representation just earlier. Were there any other queer people or people that you thought might be queer or were there any men that you sort of saw in your life when you were younger that you could identify with a bit? There was. I think George Michael for me was somebody I always kind of looked up to. But the problem is he was so, by a small population, so aggressively brought down wasn't it by opinion mm. by people's horrible vehement opinions and so even though I had him to kind of look up to I was still aware that he faced rejection and he faced hatred and he can so that kind of further amplified that feeling of not fitting in for me I think when you look up to someone who is gay or queer or out and they face such homophobia and so much rejection that sometimes can trickle down to the person who's looking up to that person. And so yeah. for me, in, in the situation that I was in, on my little quiet farm in the middle of rural Lancashire with my stepbrothers and my, my stepdad, it kind of made me think, oh, shit, you know, there's, there's no hope here at all. Yeah, and that would have been true of any gay role models in the public eye that you would have seen at that point, presumably. Definitely. If you were conscious of the response to them, there would have been a hell of a lot of negative responses in there. That's true, it, it is. And I think the other role model I think that I would have had was my dad, who... Um, he's very flamboyant, very camp, very... He's a musician, he's a singer, he is a huge show-off and most wonderful show-off imaginable. But I think because my parents divorced when I was young, whenever I kind of looked up to my dad, I felt a guilt towards my mum for, for wanting to, like, appreciate yeah. my dad. And I don't know or think that that was instilled in me by my mum and stepdad. I don't think it was, but I think naturally when you go through that kind of family trauma, you are torn in and pulled in different directions. And so it took a lot many, many years of self-reflection and therapy to kind of work out how to patch myself together, not even patch myself together, but to work out from which thread I was woven, you know, because yeah. I was so confused as to who it was I could look up to um, for many, many years. Mm. So what kind of shifted things for you then? When did you come out? I came out, I was forced out. I was kind of dragged out of the closet because I, I came out at school, I think it was year nine I came out because I remember the, the specific head of year who was sat in on this meeting and she was a very austere woman, looked like an owl. <sighs> and I told her and my form tutor and this head of year rang home and told my mum. Oof. Oh, Christ. So it's almost like, you know, this don't say gay bill in Florida. It's a similar situation to that. Yeah, which we've just been talking about, actually, last mm. week. Yeah. Mm. Bloody hell. You know, and it's... Basically, as if to say to your mum, this needs to be sorted out, sort of thing. Yeah, she's rang up and said, John's come out as gay, so you deal with it now. Christ. And my mum was kind of like... We, my mum did that thing where, you know, it was just a phase, brushed it under the carpet. My sisters were amazing because they said, no matter what you are, we'll love you anyway, you know, in spite of being gay. But they didn't mean it quite like that. They meant, you know, we will support you for who you are. 
and we love you. But it kind of got forgotten then because I insisted that I wasn't and it was just for attention at school and it kind of got swept under the rug and the closet got firmly locked up and uh, duct tape shut. Yeah, you were forced out of the closet and then sort of basically shouldered back into it. Shouldered myself back in there, yeah, because I just wasn't, I wasn't ready. You know, my stepdad, we get on really, really well now, me and my stepdad, but he went to an old boys school. So at that point, he hadn't really kind of figured his own opinion out about homosexuality. And I think that's the thing, you know, whether he was homophobic back then, I don't, I don't think he was, but it wasn't easy. You know, mum wanted to kind of shelter me from telling him all those years ago. But I think that's the thing for me. I think even though at that time I didn't feel accepted with work and self-reflection from each of us and working together as a family, we kind of changed perspectives and people's opinions shifted. And I think that's an important thing to remember is that you should by no means sympathise with somebody who is trying to belittle you or put you into a box or, you know, label you as something. But if you are a bit more open-minded together and have a conversation, sometimes really progressive things can come out of that conversation. And that's why I really hate right. cancel culture because it doesn't give that opportunity of education. You know, I think if someone does something really, really aggressively wrong that goes against morals of a community, of an individual, then we have to consider whether or not they should be accepted in our kind of conversation. But I think for the most part, conversation is such an important thing and cancel culture really only serves to quieten conversations. And without conversations, we can't have education. And without education, there's no progress. Right. So, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that my stepdad is amazing now. You know, he's very, very cool. He loves me and my partner and, and you know, progress has been made. I think that there's a generation of people probably about your stepdad's age and, you know, many of our parents' age who... As you say, homophobic is not really the word, but there's a kind of category of behaviour that's not out-and-out homophobic, but it just comes from a lack of engagement with the idea, right? And it's quite easy to label people as being yeah, bigoted or phobic about something when in actual fact they've just gone through their lives without much exposure to any of these ideas, which is where education comes in, as you say. It does, and it's, it's, it's kind of passed down, isn't it, as well? I think that, that mindset is yeah. passed down. There are so many things that are hereditary and inherited, and I think outlook towards particular minority groups is undoubtedly, it's kind of created, isn't it, from your parents. Yeah. And I think it's, that's why it's so important that schools and many schools in this country are having LGBTQ plus education. And it's so important that conversation carries on outside of the family home. Because even if someone grows up with parents who have a very old fashioned dim view of, of trans people and gay people in our community, then, you know, I think, at least school can help remedy that and at least dilute that very negative opinion. Because when things are questioned, when a person is made to question their opinion, that's a really positive thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's about accountability as well, isn't it, really? I think accountability is what I would look toward rather than cancelling somebody. It's them taking accountability for what they've said or their actions means that they need to know what they said and why that's impacted yeah. people and how that's impacted people. The power of change, I think, is the most inspiring thing in this whole world, really, is watching somebody who's said something completely wrong or done something completely wrong, understanding why and taking steps to change and move forward. And that's kind of why I was mm. quite moved when you mentioned about the straight people who've been messaging you and you're on Strictly. It's like, that is amazing because that's somebody whose mind you might not have automatically reached actively changing and that is you're watching tangible progress yeah and I, I think that is what john's point is about if we cancel people too hastily as you say then they're only likely to sort of dig deeper into their original position and uh right. if, if it is possible to have dialogue with people then everything is on the table you know which is i think what john was saying again conversation gives you the option of that well that's exactly it 
Exactly. And after that conversation, if that person is so bigoted and so small minded and they won't even see the light that you're trying to, you know, throw on them, then that's when you cancel them. <laughs> Give them <laughs> Yeah. And then you never look back, baby. <laughs> You've got to one day. <laughs> the pitchfork needs to be in one hand, yeah. but you aren't automatically gonna use it. Exactly. <laughs> Have the pitchfork in the hall ready to go, at least, yeah. Have it leaning by the door. <laughs> to go back to you when you were younger, and I'm really sorry about that coming out experience, that's awful. But you mentioned kind of going back into the closet, and I wonder kind of what that did to you, but also how did you express going back into the closet? How did you show not being gay, in inverted commas, to the world? I I wore Slipknot t-shirts. I dyed... Ah, that'll do it. Dyed my hair. Dyed yeah. my hair black. Absolute shortcut, <laughs> yeah. that is. <laughs> I, I'm straight. Um, <laughs> you know, I painted my fingernails black. Yeah. Which is, you know, what the gay community does now, actually. So I was kind of ahead of my time. I literally just took mine off yesterday. So, I bet yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of went quite to a dark place. I thought I was a witch, actually. I dabbled with witchcraft for a while at school. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit that. And I'm certain, guys, if even though, you know, I don't practice it now, I've given up my broomstick. I'm certain that one of my spells got a boy expelled, a guy who was bullying me. Expellior, really? Expellior, yeah. <laughs> I remember did this spell before I went on holiday. And when I got back, he'd farted in his chair and he was like the naughty boy, but he'd farted on purpose and got expelled for it. Because it was like the kind of, it was <laughs> the fart that broke the donkey's back because he was a very, very naughty, naughty lad. And he was the guy who bullied me. So that's why I cast this spell on him. So when I got back from Gozo, he was gone. Amazing. <laughs> what was the spell? How do you do the spell? Yeah. How did you conduct this magic? It involved rose petals. It involved a candle, some water. I remember doing it in the bathroom because I was so like, it was my secret thing that I did at home. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's not always easy to bring up in conversation that you've replaced your gay hobby with, with witchcraft. witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact you were in Gozo as well. I, I mean, I know where Gozo is, but it does sound like you slunk off to this faintly magical sounding island to plot. <laughs> it's one of the most Catholic islands in Europe, isn't it? I think Gozo. So if, yes. If they learned to my behaviour, I would have been um, taken out, I think. And... Not noted as a home of witchcraft traditionally, but uh, <laughs> there you go. It is now. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> I'll be off to Gozo, if you know what I mean. I would watch your behaviour quite carefully. So, <laughs> but, you know, I gave, I gave up the witchcraft because I realised my power was too strong. And I, <laughs> yeah, so... of course. It's dangerous to wield that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But in all seriousness, I think going back in the closet kind of made me quite homophobic. Um, when I came out again, I was, I was homophobic for a while. Mm. I think I was homophobic right up until Bake Off, actually. I didn't really like camp people. Um, I was afraid of being camp because I knew that I was inherently quite a camp guy. Um, you were just trying to distance yourself from that and it turned itself into distaste for other people. It did, which is, I think, what a lot of homophobia is based on, really, is, is kind of a you recognise something in yourself and so you instantly hate it and you project that hate mm. out rather than deal with what it is you're seeing within yourself. And so it turned me quite anti-camp mm. for a very long time because I was so afraid that it would be an identifying matter, I think, for me. And it would lead to isolation, it would lead to rejection, it would lead to that kind of um, just not fitting in, as I as I experienced already at school. Do you think camp does have, I mean, the, well, this potentially sounds like a homophobic question, but we've touched on this briefly before in the podcast. Do you think that... Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> My pitchfork is lined up, Mark. You be careful. It's not a problem with camp, but I sometimes feel like... Uh, Certainly with my parents' generation, an over-representation of camp entertainers as this is what gay people are like probably did cause mm. gayness and gay people to be understood in a slower way. Basically, I, I feel like there was a time when high camp was sort of the only form of gayness that we ever saw. So I can understand a certain discomfort with it if you did, mm. because, you know, it does... I'm not saying that camp sort of stokes the fires of homophobia, but it leads people to understand the gays in one very specific way, I suppose. And a very sanitised way. Yeah, it is sanitised. And it's also just, it's kind of, in a way, that camp Saturday night entertainment vibe. It's as though you're trying to make something more easily digestible to the masses, isn't it? Because it's identifiable instantly. Uh, yeah. Of course, you have been on Strictly now, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was not camp at all. <laughs> the show has its camp moments, it's fair to say. <laughs> oh, it does, and it's wonderful in that sense. You know, I've stolen about five of the glittery outfits. I should have put I'm one not on surprised. tonight for this recording. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it made me quite fearful of being mm. camp. And I remember being in McDonald's, this was years ago, maybe primary school. And I think because I was so aware of people being like bullied and stuff for being camp. I remember I was stood next to a guy. I think I'd gone up to claim my toy from my uh, Happy Meal that didn't appear in my Happy Meal. So I was I marched up to the counter, you know, pitchfork in hand. and uh, <laughs> Ready to cancel Ronald McDonald. He was off. Honey, I was ready to cancel him. <laughs> do I look happy? No, I do not have a Happy Meal. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't be more miserable. But the guy in front of me was ordering something and he, he spoke like Dale Winton. And it made me panic because I knew that I was going to be like that. And I panicked because I thought, shit, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person. Mm. But now, you know, I'll happily speak like Dale Winton. I'd love, you know, I think he was amazing. And I think it's just like, it's just that fear, isn't it? That fear coupled with rejection, coupled with in the face of what it is to be a man, you know, a big dick slinging man. It kind of... Mm. You do keep bringing out my huge dick, John, but... It's because like... <laughs> I can see it silhouetted on your fireplace. Yeah, yeah. Just I... put it away. <laughs> should have been more careful with the setup, actually. You should. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. I know, I'm really sorry. <laughs> so that was me then. And I think that is a testament, again, to how people can change, even within the gay community, even with you know outside the gay community, within the gay community. We can all change. And it's just about empathy, isn't it? I think the more you self-reflect, the more you allow yourself to be consciously vulnerable, 
you can then empathize with yourself, you can forgive yourself, you can let go of the shame. And once you let go of the shame, you're reborn, my darling, and you are fucking glittery <laughs> and fabulous. <laughs> if you want to be, you don't have to be. <laughs> when did that happen for you? So you mentioned that it was kind of around Bake Off, it started to change. What happened? Yeah, because on Bake Off, I didn't mention I was gay until Biscuit Week. <laughs> And <laughs> the traditional coming out week. Yeah. I did a big gingerbread knob and sat on it. <laughs> no. Mary's eyebrows disappeared and have not yet been seen. That's a good bake. Yeah. <laughs> Bit dry. <laughs> anyway, there you were on Biscuit Week. I was on Biscuit Week. I was making a Colosseum. As one does. As one does on, you know, on, on Biscuit Week. And I made this Colosseum and I said, my boyfriend, Paul, he works for an architect's company. So he designed the floor plan of this coliseum for me Incredible. you know the en-suites and the, the sauna <laughs> um, the scheming that goes into these cakes absolutely mad I know. his whole company had to stop work for a full day to design my coliseum <laughs> uh, so i um, referenced that and then there was outrage on twitter not outrage but you know uproar and and, and public support they were umming and ahhing you know when you're on bake off you go through it don't you on twitter you sit there selfless uh, selflessly no completely selfishly and self-obsessedly uh, looking through the feed at what people are saying and and you tell everyone that you're not doing it except you absolutely are until the early hours until the early, yeah <laughs> until you've had a few whiskeys and then you think oh wasn't i amazing let's see what people had to say <laughs> like some hollywood starlets out there with a cigarette in your mouth <laughs> wasn't i phenomenal <laughs> who loves me <laughs> yeah who loves me validate me validate me. So you just referred to the fact that your partner was a man. Yeah, a big grizzly bear of a man. Yeah. So yeah, and then that was it then, I was out. And I kind of, yeah, I, I don't know really what happened after that. That was me out then. I did work with Attitude magazine and I kind of started to feel like I had a place. Like I, it was okay for me to be gay and out and proud and vocal about it, you know, because mm. up to that point, I didn't really, I was comfortably gay, <laughs> comfortably gay. I was, you know, I was comfortable in my skin. <laughs> No. Notoriously uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Um, okay, that's enough of that, boys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I kind of then felt accepted. Mm. And from then on, it was a kind of journey to then combating that inner homophobia that I, I felt, because I then became pals with a guy called Michael, who um, was part of the team at Pride in London. And, you know, he was really, really pro-gay and all of that. And it kind of made me see the virtue of it and the and the importance of, of the LGBTQI plus community. You know, I, I never really went to Canal Street, I never really went to Pride. But then as I became more comfortable in my own skin, I, I saw the importance and I see the importance now of it as a community. It's really interesting because that's the, almost the exact same thing I had post Bake Off. Like, I met you, John, at my first ever Pride. 2019, Ariana Grande. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that was the first time I had ever been to a Pride. And that was, I'd filmed Bake Off. I was, what, 26 at the time. And I'd never felt the, the tie to going to a Pride event or the tie to going to queer bars. It was actually my friend blue blue hydrangea who took me to gay bars and was like we need to hang out here yeah and it was amazing and it was really cool what brought you out like what brought you to those places i think because me and paul got together very young i was 19 i think and he was a few i don't even know how old he is so don't even ask me you'll find out <laughs> at some point you'll have a 50th or something he'll tell me i'll turn up to a party and it won't be for me and i'll realize it's his 50th there'll be a number on a balloon and you'll think oh, i must be there <laughs> it's surely not me it's paul um so you know we got together quite young and we were very we never went out at the weekends we stayed in and got takeaways and stuff like that and we just wanted to be together all the time and i think 
we both missed out on a lot of the formative years of being a gay gentleman. <laughs> and then I think in the, it was kind of pride, the same pride that we met, actually, 2019, when we had the time of our lives dancing in that mucky... Oh, it was grim. What could only be described as, like, a kind of deserty car park, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was... I mean, I, I had to throw my shoes away that, that morning because they were, they were soiled. <laughs> but I think that pride when we were dancing to Ariana Grande, and it was kind of like a year or two after the Manchester bombing, and, mm. you know, I think that whole feeling of freedom and celebration of life and what she brought to Manchester that pride kind of transcended just you know just me and my experience it made you realize the importance of a community and the importance of celebrating who you are mm. and accepting who you are that coupled with you know therapy I think for me was when I realized I'm here I'm queer and I'm going to shake my ass on the dance floor in Canal Street because <laughs> when you do that you have fun and you meet friends and you meet community and you, you feel like you have an identity which I think Many, many people, gay and straight and trans and, you know, every, everyone, every human being grows up with a certain element of shame and guilt for something. And I think if you allow that guilt, which is what happens, I think, in the queer community, that guilt becomes very corrosive and deeply rooted within you. And it takes a lot to get rid of that. And I think when you do, your eyes are open and you think, OK, now I'm here. I mean, mm. in Tibet, I think, who was it? I was listening to Fern Cotton's podcast the other day and a chap called Bjorn, who was a, a CFO, and then he became a Buddhist monk. And someone had told him that in Tibet, you aren't considered to be an adult until you actually like yourself. Mm. And how amazing is that? Like, until you like yourself, you are a child because you are dealing with an inner child. You're dealing with the trauma and the shame and the guilt. And I think for me, when I finally realized that I'm a decent person and I like who I am, that's when I kind of felt free. When are we going to be adults, Michael? <laughs> I know, I'm, like, I'm just thinking, like, when is that coming? <laughs> I know. I'm still not entitled to vote in Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right, that's a really nice... Yeah. I think when you, you've got to deal with your shit, you've got to deal with your shame, you've got to deal with your guilt, and it's not an easy thing to do, is it? You know, it takes a lot of discipline, it takes a lot of opportunity, it takes a lot of privilege to deal with that kind of thing. You know, I could afford a therapist and I had a work-life balance that enabled me to deal with my shit. Some people work nine to five for very little money and they kind of, there's no way out of that. So I, I have to acknowledge the fact that I am very, very privileged in that sense. Mm. So I can't, you know, harp on about it too much and, and proselytise, but I think it's really important to at least have some self-reflection and some, you know, you've got to face yourself, haven't you? You mm. have to face yourself at some point in your life. And fortunately for me, I did that in my late 20s, early 30s, and I feel comfortable in my skin now. And in your late 50s, you're looking really great and really comfortable in who you are. <laughs> so oh, it's oh, a good job you're not in this room because I would slap you, man. I've heard of this style of catty gay humour, Michael. And Just uh, moving swiftly on. On Strictly. <laughs> Let's not move on. You're, you're fucking dead to me now. Um, but on Strictly, you talked quite openly and it was quite amazing seeing you embrace that feminine campsite of yourself. How was that process for you? How did that feel? Oh, that was great. It was Strictly that really kind of was the icing on the cake for me in terms of allowing myself to be camp and flamboyant because... Yeah, because I, I kind of was getting to a stage where I, I felt very comfortable in my own skin. But strictly for me was that it was the finishing point for that because I had no choice. I mean, I was doing a cha-cha-cha in a very threadbare outfit <laughs> with the most beautiful flamboyant man on the planet, Johannes. Yeah. And I had no choice but to show up and, you know, at least try and hit the dizzy heights that he was achieving. 
So, and I had that voice in my head saying, don't be too camp. And that came from a family member at a wedding who, well, a family member generally who used to say, you know, don't be too gay, don't be too camp. And I think it was because... Don't be too gay. That's what they said to me, don't be too gay, dear. <laughs> and we were at a wedding and I was doing a dance and this person said, don't be too gay, you know, don't be yeah. too gay. And I think it was their fear of me being rejected or bullied or, yeah. you know, it, it didn't come from a place of malice. It didn't. It came from a place of protection. But still, it was the wrong freaking thing to say. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, that became my conscience. And that's what I told myself for many, many years. Yeah. And difficult to only be a little bit gay, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's only really one degree, isn't there, really? Yeah. It's all or nothing to quote, you know, Cher. <laughs> our spiritual leader, yeah. our Tibetan warrior, Cher. Exactly. She's not a leader. Of She's not. You know, it's all or nothing now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think Strictly kind of just made me see that you can prance around in a threadbare top and still be accepted, even celebrated by society at large. And what more validation does one need than that than, than Strictly Come Dancing? Mm. Who do you look up to now? You seem in like quite a comfortable place. I look up to anyone who is vocal about their status, uh, whether it's, you know, whether it's an ally, whether it's a queer person, whether it's a trans person. I really find great inspiration from society at large, really. I think for me, I think one of the things that I've learned is that it's really important not to idolise any one person. A apart from Cher, to be clear. Apart from Cher and George Michael, <laughs> you know, they're exceptions yeah. to the rules. Those are givens. <laughs> yeah. I think community, which is where I started to feel accepted and I have an identity, you know, after years of having an identity crisis in the face of what it is to be a man, because I didn't really know what it was to be a man. Um, but I think when you become part of a community, you understand that it's not about idolising any one person. It's certainly not about idolising yourself. It's about being there for each other and mm -hmm. holding each other up. So I kind of idolise anyone who is vocal about it on social media. And what I really love to see is my queer brothers and sisters of colour really thriving. You know, I love mm -hmm. that. I really, really love that. And I think that's so important that we are allies to those people as well. Um, mm -hmm. So which is why I was so proud to be there with Johannes, because to see him, considering where he comes from, the township that he's from and the rejection he faced um, and the fear he faced, I think to see him really thrive and really not even thrive, he fucking soars. You know, he soars mm. higher than anything else can soar. And I just love to see that. So, yeah, I love to see people doing well for themselves. That's lovely. That's really nice. <laughs> yeah. It's such a generous instinct of yours. That's really gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, we could talk all day and we probably will if we don't end it fairly soon. So our last question I'm going to bring is... We can't end it. I've not sang for you. <laughs> I'm joking. That's a Patreon exclusive. <laughs> what three qualities, if you were to be building a person, or let's say a man, if you were to be building a man, what three qualities would you build into them? I think the first quality would have to be vulnerability. I think when you're consciously vulnerable and you allow yourself to vulnerable, you see yourself, you know, you see the things that you might try to disguise or hide. You see flaws. We have, we all have flaws. Let's face it. We're all human. Um, you see your virtues as well. I think when you're vulnerable, you, you can see where you lack and where you prosper. And I think from vulnerability naturally flows empathy because when you see yourself and when you see the trauma that you've been through or the pain that you suffer, you can empathize with that pain. And then when you've learned how to empathize that with that pain, you can then empathize with other people's pain because you know how it feels. So vulnerability, which leads to empathy. And then I think empathy has to lead to forgiveness. I think you've got to be someone who forgives and forgiveness. Again, I think it comes back to what we talked about before about cancel culture. Forgiveness is kind of preemptive in a way because it allows you to have a conversation and by all means if somebody tries to restrict you or 
restrain your liberty, that's when you cancel them. You have, you know, if they're trying to really put you in shackles, then you say, not, not today, Satan, not on my watch, bitch. Good way to talk to the devil. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? Firm. You've got to be firm with that guy. <laughs> yeah, you do, because he really pushes his luck. He really does. He's famous for it, yeah. So, yeah, I think forgiveness is a really important thing, which kind of is linked to empathy, but empathy in turn yeah. is linked to vulnerability. So the three characteristics and traits, I would say, are vulnerability, empathy and forgiveness. I think any human being would, would really thrive from making those things that they're working on. Because we have to work on being vulnerable. We have to work on empathy. We have to work on forgiveness, you know. And I think... And forgiving yourself as well, I think. So important. One of the most important things. You know, I used to, when I was slightly kind of homophobic, I'd watch RuPaul. And when he would say, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? The cynic in me would say, oh, that's so self-indulgent, you know. But then I read a quote by Audre Lorde who said that caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It's self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. And that's when I finally got to terms with the fact that you have to love yourself, you have to forgive yourself, you have to be kind to yourself, because then you can have the kindness to forgive and empathise with other people. Yeah. Well, that's a really lovely way to end. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry if I led you down the garden path and it got a little bit steamy and rude at one point. You know, <laughs> No, right? that will happen. Michael takes the responsibility uh, for that, yeah, as usual. Mum, if you're listening, Mum, Michael is to blame. He made me do it. <laughs> it's not the first time. If they want to, where could they find you, John? Who? You. Who? Where, could... where can they find you? Where, how can our listeners either find you or, or steer clear of you, depending on... What are you asking for my? You're asking me for my address. <laughs> More of an online presence uh, that they could look for, probably. Well, just search OnlyFans.com. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Only flans. Only flans. Yeah. No, I'm just on Instagram. I'm only on Instagram. I deleted Twitter because it was. I just see it as a huge empty cavern now with vultures circling the rim. So I am only on Instagram. John Waite with an H and an E. At John underscore Wait and Wait is W H A I T E. Yeah, so an H in both names. In fact, there, yeah. there are two H's, and my national insurance number is. <laughs> <laughs> Beep. Uh, thank you, John. That was lovely. Thanks very much, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks so much, guys. Thank you for having me. Uh, how do we start the outro? How do we start the second bit again? What do we normally just say? How good it was. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> to remind them. <laughs> it's been six months. <laughs> Well, that, as promised, was John, and wasn't he good? It's a bit rude, actually. There was some spicy stuff, wasn't there? Yes, especially for the time of morning it still is for you, although uh, the sun is up, apparently. That's the news for those of you who've been worried. <laughs> yes, while listening to John, the, the sun came up, which was quite a, um, a unique moment, let's say. <laughs> but yes, um, it is now currently morning. I was going to go back to bed, but I think I won't. Uh, what are you doing with the rest of your day? I have to say, and you'll have to take my word for it as listeners, but Michael looks much better than anyone's got a right to before eight o'clock in the morning and certainly better than I've ever looked like he's already got a nice jumper on and he, he looks sort of the same as most times of day I think there's quite a big gap in, in me between my well you could just make a case that I always look scruffy I suppose well with the rest of the day Michael I have the privilege of being a judge in this competition for new Australian comedians the equivalent of so you think you're funny in the UK so I have the um not very stressful job of just sitting and watching terrified young comedians try to impress me <laughs> um, I, I, it's like an x-factor pop idol type situation but on the on the relaxing side of the fence then i've got my own show to do of course which is um slightly more of a responsibility where you're terrified and trying to impress the australians yes as i have been uh, for every one of my thousands of on-stage appearances <laughs> australians are very kind audiences though in fact, i've not yet experienced too much terror this one is in a massive room though not my show but the competition is in the melbourne the main melbourne town hall which holds about 1,500 people, something like that. So for a 
kind of 22 year old comics it is a big task so um you couldn't imagine a more reassuring and pleasant presence than me to um pass heavy judgment upon that five minutes <laughs> i can't believe you are drinking a wine what <laughs> well <laughs> it, if you think of it time. yeah it, it must be a weird thing time. to look at at half past seven in the morning but again i would remind you it's um this is the first one of the day though i don't want to be <laughs> pissed running the rule over these uh, <laughs> promising youngsters particularly also i've got a long day ahead of me because as you'll know michael there is an enormous football match um this afternoon, which here oh, will be yes. one thirty in the morning, so I've still got a fair bit of stamina to, to find. You've got a, got a bit to get through. I was talking to you about time the other day, wasn't I? Because I think we should change time. I'm not sure how to submit my complaint, but um, <laughs> I feel like with the seasons, we have, we've decided that winter here, like winter in the UK is cold, but winter in Australia is warm, and that's okay. So why can't 10am here be daytime and there be nighttime, or vice versa? Why does time have to change? Well... I mean, this is heavy stuff for the first episode, Michael. And uh, I was mankind. Yeah, much the same. But Michael started ranting about changing time. <laughs> I, look, I tell you what, I, I sort of follow what you're saying, but I reckon maybe have a few days to sort of put a more um, comprehensive proposal together. And then next week, we'll we'll see if we can get some headway behind this with okay, our loyal cool. listenership. I'll work on that over the next seven days. Um, and if listeners have anything to do over the next seven days, they could go and join our Patreon, where we have exclusive content with every single guest, don't we, Mark? Yes, because um, even though the Patreon has been, as we've said, something of a wasteland for a while, we have been recording extra bits of every episode. So it will be a more, it'll be a more fertile ground once again. Um, and at some point, there'll be Michael advancing his plans to change the world's clocks. So that's probably worth signing up <laughs> <laughs> yes, so join us over at patreon.com forward stroke Menkind Podcast, or you can find us on social media at Menkind Podcast. Um, I'm going to go and crawl back into my bed and um, ignore the day until it's about about 11am, I think. I'm going to go and dazzle Australians. Um, just wherever you have been listening in the world and whatever time you've been listening uh, at, thank you very much for rejoining us at Menkind. We look forward to um, trying to entertain you again for the next number of weeks. Yes, we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.